Hey, y'all, thanks for tuning in to the Weird One Podcast. This space, it's a collection of talks ranging anywhere from sermons from our ministry, creative thoughts, breakout sessions at things like Weird One Conference, as well as some inside scoops on leadership. We hope it helps you. If you want to keep up to date with everything Weird One, you can go to weareoneyouth.com or follow us on social at WAO Youth. We hope you're blessed. Hey, welcome to our third of the extensions. I'm pretty sure this is our third one. Acts 6 to 7, I'm going to try to cover today. And uh, in the message that hopefully you watched already, it's called Stepping Stones. If you watch that, I already covered a lot in that one. So this one is just kind of a little bit of the extras. It's an extension of it. Um, But yeah, this is our third one. So we've already in the extensions, we covered a little bit of Acts 1, Acts 2. Now we're jumping to Acts six and seven. And kind of in this year, this vision, keep us dangerous in these volumes we're doing, we're jumping all over the place, but it's very purposeful because if you take the content of a previous chapter, rather than, again, I know I could go acts two, right to three and four. I actually, I'm going to do three and four later because the content, the setup of acts two, this idea of acts two, that they were full of the Holy spirit is such a connection piece here to where I'm going to start here in Acts six. I want to read it for you, just give you a couple of verses, and then we'll we'll go from there. So Acts 6, let me go verses 1 to 4. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, and that's incredible, right? Wherever Jesus is made known, and wherever the power of the Holy Spirit exists, there's going to be increase. The increase is coming. That's something that we lean into, like a prophetic word, so strong for our ministry. The number of disciples was increasing, and the Hellenistic Jews, which I explained in the message, the difference between the Hebraic Jews and the Hellenistic Jews. I really explained that and stepping stone. So I'm not going to take time here, but make sure you watch that if you haven't. The Hellenistic Jews among them complained about the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the 12, that's the the 12 apostles, gathered all the disciples, the believers in Jesus together. Like, okay, let's have a conversation here. This is a problem. We got to figure this out. And they said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. They're not saying it's below them. They're saying God has given us a mandate to do something very specific, right? And we have to stay true to that. So brothers and sisters, you do it. You know them. You choose seven among you, it says here, from whom you know that they're full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. So that's the connection piece right here to Acts chapter 2, right? They're full of the Holy Spirit, but also wisdom. And we will turn this responsibility that we've been trying to handle, we're going to turn that over to them, and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. So the qualifications here of the choosing of the seven in Acts chapter 6, seven people, seven men here has come to find out if you you read the account. The, The qualifications for them to be able to serve tables. Are you following me here? Now, it's not literally this translating this way, but to be a waiter, to be a waitress. Are you checking this? The qualifications to do that is you have to be full of the Holy Spirit. You have to be baptized in the Holy Spirit and be full of wisdom in order to be a waiter, in order to be a waitress. Now, I know it's not the exact translation, but doesn't that sound like those qualifications are a little intense? just to serve food? Like, does it, does it sound like, God, you're, you're asking a little much of these guys just to be given the, the Hellenistic and Hebraic Jews and the widows and all, just to give them food? You got to be full of the Spirit 
and wisdom just to serve food. We can never look at the Bible and just say, God, you're asking too much. We have to always look at it and say, God, why are you asking this much? So there's two things I want you to recognize in this. Why would God be saying, setting this up through the apostles, right, to choose seven so that the apostles can focus on the uh, prayer and preaching the word, and then these seven can focus on waiting tables, right, or looking after the food distribution? Why would it be so extreme? Two reasons, I'll tell you. Number one, look at there is a frustration happening between the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews, and there could be possible division in the church. So they're going to need wisdom in order to deal with any of the frustration and the problems. If What if people start bickering with one another? What if a fight came about? Like, even though we got Jesus, we're, we're still flesh, right? And that's why we need the fruit of the Spirit. We need patience with each other. We need these things. But we can still have issues. So we need leaders that are going to be wise enough to know how to deal with it, number one. Number two, when you're talking about being full of the Holy Spirit— and full of wisdom in this case. What are we really talking about? What's like a one-word that can kind of come around it and define all that? Holiness. Men and women, that would be holy unto God. Holy means to be set apart. That they'd be, they'd be just a cut above, right? So here, here's the thing. It doesn't just say that they were Christians, believers in Jesus. It said not only were they that, but they had to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. Meaning what? I believe there's a lot of people that truly love Jesus, can claim to even follow Jesus, but they're not fully set apart. They're not fully holy and set apart unto God. Becoming full of the Holy Spirit, full of a wisdom to make decisions. And why did they have to be holy? Not so they just have the wisdom to not deal with the people, but also how do you get food? Remember, they're giving the food out. But how do you get food? Did they just... Here it is. Let's now distribute this. Taking a nice uh, drink of my, it's rowdy, a little energy drink for me. How do you get food? Money. You need money to buy food. I just think scripture's so clear the love of money, right? The love of money is the root of all evil. It's not having money, it's not knowing how to use money. It's loving money. I just see, even in this generation, I've witnessed this, at a young age, there is a greed that is trying to infiltrate the hearts of young people, every age, for sure. But we expect it with adults, right? People that work overtime and all these things, we expect that. But I see it right now in young people, especially, uh, I'll even tell you practically, as it's such an online generation now, they don't have to be in school the whole time so they can go get a job. And they're making a lot of money at a young age. Now, other generations, they would work a lot growing up, work on the farm, work jobs, but they're making peanuts. Today, the way minimum wage has skyrocketed and all these things, they're working a lot of hours and then making a lot of money. So there's a greed that wants to fill the hearts of young people already. So why do they need to be full of the Spirit and full of wisdom? Because they need to be holy, set apart, so they could be entrusted with money. So then they would be able to take the money. People would not question, well, we can trust them with that. They're good with money. They're good stewards of money. They're not greedy. They can go purchase the food. They can take care of the needs. They can take care of the people, take care of waiting the tables. It wasn't just being a waiter or a waitress. It was bigger than that. And this whole setup here, the writer Luke, 
in the that wrote the book of Acts, he doesn't say it exactly, because this is the beginning of the setup of all. The apostles set up the understanding that we need seven men at this moment that can take care of this. But later in the New Testament, the apostle Paul defines what this role is exactly. There's a title to it. It's called a deacon. Later in Scripture, the Apostle Paul sets up that this is called a deacon, and it speaks about it specifically in 1 Timothy chapter 3. God has high standards for deacons, high standards. Now, we have deacons here at our church, and most churches that are set up uh, with the New Testament principles and structure that we follow here, that Jesus had set up the 12, the 12 had set up now the seven, and slowly from there, the Apostle Paul set up how it's all structured. If you follow just the writings of the New Testament, God has high standards for deacons. They have qualifications, high character standards. Why? Because they're going to be entrusted. If you can't be trusted, why would you ever be entrusted? If you can't be somebody that shows me you're trustworthy, why would I entrust you with something that you're not worthy to have? And so I just think understanding this, maybe if you're if you're there and, and, and you're like, hey, I don't feel like a call to be a pastor or something like that in the church, that's great. But what if God called you to be a deacon, a deaconess? That's like the, the female version. What if God wanted to use you in a way that could really bless God's church. But at whatever age you are watching this, if say if you're young to even start there, you need to understand that you're greedy and you need to be holy and set apart for God to realize that ain't your money. You're just a steward of what belongs to the Lord. Or maybe you're a little bit older. Maybe you're like, man, uh, I serve and I'm doing this, I'm doing that. But maybe before God can really use you to the next level, you got to get some, some character issues in check first and understand the qualifications. Let me read them for you here. The Apostle Paul first starts off in 1 Timothy 3, and he talks about the qualifications of an overseer, which that's like a pastor is what it's referring to. And then he continues the qualifications of a deacon next. Let me start at verse 8. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine. That's why I just don't touch it in the first place, and then I will never have to worry about indulging in it. But like in that culture, this is what they had. They, they, they drank wine and all that kind of stuff, but not indulging a lot of it because you're going to get drunk, and then bad stuff happens when you're drunk. Not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience, okay, right? So David said, I want to have clean hands and a pure heart, and the Apostle Paul adds a clear conscience in his writings. So I want to have make sure my hands, my heart, and my head are all in right standing with the Lord. They must first be tested. So you, you've been in the circuit for a while, right? You've been serving. You've been, they, people have been able to watch you. You've been tested. Because what hasn't been tested can't be trusted. And if God is going to make you somebody who can be entrusted, you have to be somebody who has been trusted, which means you have to be somebody that's been tested, it says here. And then... If there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. So after it's been tested. And I love this next verse. is actually really important. In the same way, the women, you know what it's referring to? Deacons' wives. I'm not looking at you as an individual. If you're married, you're a package deal. So who you marry matters, and their character matters for God's glory. The women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, gossipers, which was something that happened a lot in the New Testament church with women especially. They were called busybodies. But temperate and trustworthy in everything. Then it goes back. Okay, now we got that clarified. Let's go. And a deacon 
must be faithful to his wife. One wife, no divorce, faithful, and must manage his children and his household well. If you can't take care of your own house, why could you take care of God's house? If you can't take care of your children, why could you take care of God's children? That's what Apostle Paul said it up here. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. So the main difference here, because it set up the overseers first and then the deacon, they're both very similar in what, what God is asking of this leadership position. It's a, it's a high call. It, it, it sounds like, oh, they're just serving food. No, it, it's much bigger than that. God set it up so that the deacons would take care of the people's physical needs, so the pastor could take care of their spiritual needs. So the pastor can devote himself to prayer and to, to studying the Word and teaching the Word. So the pastor can take care of their heart and their soul and their physical need, and the deacon will help take care of uh, the spiritual need, and the deacon can help take care of the physical need. So the deacon is going to help oversee pretty much anything but what would fall under a shepherding and a teaching call, right? Jesus said this in John 10. He said, the sheep hear my voice. That's how they know me. In the same way, that's how God, because he's called the good shepherd in John 10. In the same way, that is what God has set up for a pastor. They're a shepherd. There's a teaching call aligned with it, that the sheep, when I teach them, they'll hear my voice and that they will hear God's voice through his word. And I have to devote myself to that. And that's why a deacon is so powerful, because if the deacon is not helping take care of the physical needs, which the apostle Paul, um, the apostles, I mean, the 12, they're trying to do both. They're trying to take care of all the physical needs and then all the spiritual needs. And they're just like, oh, we can't do it all. We got to choose seven people that can help us take care of this. And so if we can devote ourselves and stay focused on studying the word, on prayer, on fasting, on teaching it, all that, then they can take care and serve alongside of us with the physical need. The apostle Paul then took it a step further to specifically say, okay, you're called a deacon. You're called an overseer, a shepherd, a pastor. That's how it translates. And we're going to work together to make sure that God's church is dealt with. Now, the Bible doesn't 100% lay all this out for us of exactly everything a deacon does. It's not 100% clarity. But we can pretty much assume this. If the pastor, the overseer, is going to take care of the spiritual, which is going to be the teaching, the shepherding, all that, a deacon then can take care of anything else besides that. Couple examples of like what our deacons take care of today. We have a deacon board at our church, and they'll help. The, they could just start by overseeing. Let's say one thing they do is our facility. Even where I'm at right now, shooting this, it's it's our church facility that we utilize for God's glory. Whether it's shooting this for you or in many other capacities, right? They help oversee that. They bring the needs to the body, and they go listen. We need to raise money for this. This is falling apart here. Or this is how we need to take care of this, or we need to help fix the parking lot, or we need to take care of the church grounds, or whatever it is, they will help take care of church property in God's facility, buying new property so we can advance the gospel, let's say. Benevolence is another thing that they'll do. That could be food distribution. That could be just taking care of uh, needs of people in the church, such as the least of these, and widows, and veterans we do in our church, all these things. They'll bring these needs before the people. And then the last one, which is why you need to be full of the Spirit and wisdom, is managing church finances. This is a huge thing they, they do because you can't manage the facility or, or operate in benevolence if you can't manage the finance. You have to have the finances do all this. So they'll help oversee the offerings, take care of the different records, uh, church you know, financial records, and things like that. Seven of them are mentioned by name, but one of them specifically stands out, and that's who I want to zone in on. And I, I preach this in the message, but I want to give you a couple other pieces to this man, Stephen. The, the Bible said 
that all the seven have to be full of the Spirit and wisdom, but then also describes that Stephen had, is full of faith as well. And then specifically in verse 8, it continues, and it says, Now Stephen, a man's full of, full of God's grace and power. Okay, so this dude, full of the Spirit, wisdom, faith, grace, and power. And that's what Jesus told us in Acts 1.8. He said that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and give you power to be my witnesses. But that power in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, the Apostle Paul talks about how that power can manifest through healing, miracles, all this stuff. Well, this is what Stephen's doing. It says that, that uh, grace and power, he performed great wonders and signs among the people. Here's what I want you to understand. The, the old phrase is new levels, new devils. New levels, new devils. That's the phrase. This is what I've come to realize when I'm used for God's glory. If you are used for God's glory with power, if you're going to perform signs and wonders, if miracles are going to happen, if you're going to have a grace on you and a power on you and a faith to see the impossible be done, do you know what the result of that is? It's not like God pats you on the back like, good job, buddy. Do you know how you're doing a good job? Let's look at the first word of uh, verse 9. Opposition. First two words. Opposition arose. Do you know how if you're doing a good job for God, you'll have opposition come against you? If you are doing something for God's glory, if people are getting saved, if, if, if lives are being touched, changed, all this stuff, do you know how you know it's going well? Not You won't just see the fruit of, obviously, salvations and all that. You'll see all of hell kick up. New levels, new devils. You'll see the demonic come and try to, to come upon what you're doing. You'll see opposition. That's how you know if you're doing a good job. I know. It, it doesn't make sense, does it? Like, we just want to sit for a second and be like, I did a good job. No, you were just a willing vessel. God did the work through you. You didn't do anything. You were just obedient and willing. That's all you did. It's his power, faith, grace, spirit, wisdom. Like we're talking about with Stephen here, it's all him. So here it says in verse 9 and 10 of Acts 6, the opposition arose, however, is like, no, yeah, we know it's coming. It's not a however. It's not like, well, I guess randomly. No, it's coming from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the province of um, um, Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. That's the opposition, but I love it. They could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. This is why we need wisdom, right? Uh, James, who helped oversee the church in Acts 15, there in Jerusalem, he writes later, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask, and it'll be given to you. We need wisdom, because when opposition comes, we have to know how to speak to that. Now, let me tell you who comes against them here. It says, that's members, these men from the synagogue of the freedmen. Uh, and it describes here that there was... Um, Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and those, those people were from North Africa, and there was also those from um, Cilicia and Asia. These men were once either slaves or prisoners in Rome. That's why it's called the synagogue of the freed men, because they were once prisoners or slaves, then they're set free. They make their way now to Jerusalem, kind of find a home there, and it's Stephen's in this synagogue, right? Synagogue was like the gathering place for them to worship, and he starts just preaching about Jesus. He starts witnessing, remember Acts 1-8, a witness, declaring who Jesus is. 
like what he's experienced through the Holy Spirit, what God has to offer us. So as he starts breaking it all down, they get ticked. There's an uprising that occurs. They begin to argue with him. And, and I think the reason that we need to be wise, right? Jesus told us this. He said, be wise as serpents, gentle as doves. The reason we need to be is because wherever truth is, is spoken, people are going to push against it. So if you don't have a, a love for people, then convey that truth to people. When they push back against it, then if you don't have a wisdom to know how to deal with those arguments, you're going to stop at, uh, 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 because the Bible says, no, yeah, what's the, what's the wisdom, though, in how you deal with the heart of somebody? What's the wisdom in the way that you can convey something you know, to somebody that can really help them in a wise and loving, gentle manner understand the things of God? What happened here with Stephen? It says that they're pushing up against him, they're arguing, but the Spirit of God inside of him that brought forth that wisdom is pushing back in a way that it says they could not stand up against him. They couldn't stand up against his wisdom. So because they couldn't combat the arguments, uh, a number of different writers speak about this, right? There was false accusations against Stephen, false accusations against Jesus, lots of false accusations uh, and, um, against Moses, people in the Bible, right? And because they couldn't stand up against his wisdom, you know what they did? They lied. They falsely accused him. They found other people to stir it all up, stir up the arguments, even brought it before some of the elders. And they eventually made their way to the Sanhedrin where they could come against him. But they had to lie to get there. That's what you'll find. If you use love, truth, and wisdom, people will finally have to lie against you to get their way because they will not be able to push back the name of Jesus and the truth of his word and the wisdom that you use and the way that you lovingly say things. They won't be able to stand up against him. So this Sanhedrin that they bring him to, to give you context, like what is the Sanhedrin, right? The Sanhedrin, it was typically 171 Pharisees and Sadducees that made it up. The Pharisees and Sadducees, they were known as like rabbis in that time. And it was a religious legisl legislative body of people. And they really had kind of two functions. They would operate politically and then judicially. Politically, the Sanhedrin, these 71 members, they could appoint a king, a high priest. They could declare war. They could expand the territory of Jerusalem or the temple. And then judicially, scary dudes, right? They could put the high priest, a false prophet, a, re, uh, a rebellious leader, which is what they're calling Stephen in this case, on trial, and even to the point they could execute them. These were very powerful dudes. And all these people lied against Stephen to get him to this point, and they falsely accused him to get him to this point where he's now standing before the most powerful dudes of the Jewish people. He's standing there now essentially on trial. If he had just kept his mouth shut, he would have been okay. But he couldn't help it. The, as, as the Bible talks about from Acts 6 then into Acts 7, he begins to just preach the truth of who Jesus is. It actually describes in Acts uh, 6.15, look it. It says that all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, I talked about that, this in the message. It's saying like some little chubby, heart-playing angel, right? This was the face of the dangerous. As he faced danger, his face was dangerous. And as he looked upon them, they looked intently, and they're like, 
they see the face of an angel as he begins to speak the truth. This is what led him to finally, uh, hopefully you watch the message or read the account, because I'm about to like, spoiler alert, give it away. As chapter 7 continues, it says there's Stephen's defense, and it leads all the way to Stephen put to death. He's stoned, and he's put to death by stoning. The face of an angel, the face of the dangerous. But because he couldn't keep his mouth shut, which no one can, that follows Jesus, we're not supposed to, he goes on this lengthy discourse in chapter 7. I mean, he, the dude just starts, I don't even know like how many verses it is, but man, sheesh, what is it? 53 verses, something like that. 52, I think, is when the sermon starts at verse 2, Acts 7. He just starts going. I want to make it simple for you. It really breaks down to four simple understandings because he's like going all over the place. What are the four simple understandings of what he brings in a sermon? Number one, Stephen just wants to make it known to all the Jews. Listen, you have an obsession, an obsession that everything has to be done in the temple, that worship can only exist in the temple. But I want to help you remember that all of your ancestors, Abraham and Moses and all of they didn't all worship in a temple. They worshiped God wherever they were. They worshiped the Lord wherever they encountered him. It doesn't have to be in a temple, number one. Number two, he wanted to help them recall the story of Egypt. It started with Joseph, who went from being a thrown in a pit by his brothers to then a prison, to finally the palace, where he became the second in command to all of Egypt next to Pharaoh, and he had favor there. He helped in the midst of famine, all of these things, but then... That Pharaoh, after he was no longer in place, there was a new Pharaoh, and that Pharaoh did not remember the people of God. So Moses, in a basket, enters Pharaoh's home. you got to read it in the book of Exodus. I can't break it all down for you. But eventually, as now the people of God are enslaved, Moses finds himself in a pasture, right? And God encounters him at a burning bush. The voice of God comes out from the burning bush, and he tells him, you need to go stand before this Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go my people have been in slavery, and you need to set them free. That was the second point. Third point that Stephen brings up is he reminds them that from that point, they went through all these years of wandering in the wilderness. And when they were wandering in the wilderness, they didn't have a temple there either. He keeps coming back to this point like, you don't need a temple, right? Which is why the Apostle Paul finally makes us helps us understand we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And he's trying to slowly, he doesn't quite articulate that the same way that the Apostle Paul does later, but he's trying to help them understand, you don't need to be worshiping in a temple. We are the temple. They didn't have the temple. Now we have the Holy Spirit, so we can become a temple. But as they're in the wilderness, they're wandering, Moses gets the Ten Commandments, they're worshiping this golden calf. You need to understand they were off course here, number three. Number four, and this is, brings it to the punchline, and this is what it's all building up to in this entire sermon, where he talks about how Solomon built a temple for God, the house of God. He built a house, which was David's idea. Solomon executed it, but this is what he said. But God never asked Solomon to do that. David and Solomon wanted to do that. God never asked him to do that. He actually, he uh, in Acts 7, 49 to 50, Stephen quotes, actually, Isaiah, the prophet, chapter 66, verses 1 to 2, and it's literally what it says in Acts 7, but I'll read it from Isaiah here. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things, and so they came into being, declares 
the Lord. And then basically, I want you to understand this, Solomon realizes later, after he builds the temple, he's like, sheesh, God can't exist in a temple. This is, that's what it says in, in 1 Kings 8.27. But will God really dwell on earth? Like, can he be contained? The, the heavens, even the highest heaven, can't contain you. How much less this temple I've built. Solomon realizes the earth can't contain the Lord. The heavens can't contain the Lord. So why would a temple that I built be able to contain the Lord? God can't be contained. He's trying to let them know. Like, listen, y'all think you've been worshiping God in a certain way that he's just now dwelling in that place. Listen, we experience him in an upper room here, the people of God now, through the Holy Spirit. Now, I've experienced him in power, and I've been doing signs. And God can't be contained, but I'll tell you how God's fashioned himself. Isn't this crazy? That the, the heavens and the earth can't contain him. Therefore, a temple, which is huge in structure, can't contain him. But isn't it amazing that when Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that God was willing to fashion himself so that he would be placed within us and that we would become the container where the Holy Spirit could exist. Now we become the temple of God. That he set it up so literally he could come and dwell inside of us. And when he does, what happens? We become full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, full of faith, full of grace, full of power, just like Stephen. We can have all of those same things. Why? Because God wanted to allow himself to be contained inside of us. Now, we got to open up the cage and let him out. We got to let out the name of Jesus. We got to let out the truth of Jesus, the power, the love of Jesus, so other people can encounter him too. We don't keep him inside, but he allowed himself to come and exist inside of us. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they just couldn't get it. And this is what Stephen was speaking to. They couldn't get it. They're like, listen, this is how it needs to work in the temple. And, and this is, uh, we got this, this, uh, this place here where it's like the outer court and then the inner court. And, all, and, and, and Stephen's like, yeah. why do you guys resist the Holy Spirit? Will you ever get it? Solomon got it. Moses got it. Abraham got it. Why won't y'all get it? God can't be contained in a temple. We're the temple is essentially what he's trying to bring forth. So with his face, verse 15 says in Acts 6, shining like an angel, the face of the dangerous, he speaks the truth of God's word. And he could not keep his mouth shut. If he had just kept his mouth shut, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, everybody that the Sanhedrin, they would have saved him. They would have let him go. But he could not keep his mouth shut that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And I just got to tell people about him. Why? You know why? He didn't need the Sanhedrin to save him. Jesus had already saved him. He didn't need man to try to give him approval. Jesus had already given him approval. And so because he had already been saved, he couldn't keep quiet. My encouragement to you is very simple. It's this. Recognize that God has packaged himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to be so present in your life through the Holy Spirit inside of you. That Holy Spirit unlocks faith and grace and truth and power and wisdom and love and all of the good things of God and unlocks it so you can live your life with that potential. Why? So that you will not keep quiet. 
We have to make sure that Jesus is known in all the earth. We have to make sure that people know who he is, what he's done. And the Holy Spirit inside of us is what compels us to make that known. Don't keep quiet. No matter what people say, no matter what people do, no matter if they come against you, don't keep quiet. You don't need anyone's approval and you don't need anyone's safety. God's already saved you. God has already given you approval when he shed his blood on the cross so that you could live for him through his son, Jesus, and through the power of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus, I pray for everyone listening right now, anyone that would find this, anyone that could be encouraged by this, I ask that your Holy Spirit, if they would right now receive, would come and fill them fresh and new, every part of them, fill them up, baptize them in your Holy Spirit, that they might operate in this wisdom power, faith, grace, everything that we're reading about from Acts 6 and 7. Let them be full of that so that it will compel them by the love of Jesus. The love of Christ compels us to be witnesses. Lord, that we would not be able to keep this in. We would not be able to stay quiet because the world needs to know Jesus in us, through us. Lord, use us as a testimony of your grace, of your power. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. My love.